Park Hopping Podcast number 47. Celebrating 10 years of posting Disney stuff on the internet. This is another crappy podcast production. Hi there, this is Alan of DisneyFans.com, and this is the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 47, the podcast that proves that anyone can have their own podcast. Previously on the Park Hopping Podcast, we ended up back at Florida's Magic Kingdom with Part 5 of my Disney World Report. Since it's so much more effort to park hop out here in Florida than it is in California, we'll pass on waiting for that ferry boat or the monorail and just hang around here a bit longer for Part 6. Now, when Walt Disney opened Disneyland in 1955, one of the few Tomorrowland attractions was Rocket to the Moon. According to Werner Weiss's excellent website at yesterland.com, quote, sit down inside your rocket to the moon. There's a round projection screen in the center of the floor, another on the ceiling, and three tiered rows of seats surrounding the screen in concentric circles. What are the two screens for? The floor screen will show where you've been, while the ceiling screen will show you where you're going, almost as if they were windows, end quote. This original bit of science fact-based fantasy remained a staple of Disneyland until it was updated in 1967 and became Flight to the Moon as part of the new Tomorrowland project, not to be confused with the new New Tomorrowland project of 1998. TWA had replaced the original sponsor, Douglas Aircraft, around 1960, and for the 67 redo, McDonnell Douglas stepped in as a new sponsor, and a newly expanded version of the ride was created. It had a a new pre-show area that was added, which featured animatronics at Mission Control. It was this version that was replicated at the Magic Kingdom in Florida when it opened in 1971. Now, since we'd already actually been on the moon by then, the attraction was already out of date, but both versions would remain in operation until being revised once again to become Mission to Mars in 1975, and that's the version that I am familiar with. In the years that followed, both coastal versions would be changed even more. Um, Disneyland's closed in 1992, and the Magic Kingdom version followed, closing in 1993. Now, some of these changes were good. Some of these changes, maybe not so good. Well, at this point, uh, the future of the attraction was already being planned out. Usually, Disney, at least in the past, would have a plan when they would shut something down to update it. Disney had an idea for a new presentation, which would hopefully be replicated at other Magic Kingdoms. According to early concept artwork, the attraction was going to involve creatures from the Alien movies. But for whatever reason, eventually it evolved into a more generic creature when the extraterrestrial alien encounter opened in Florida in 1995. I got to see this attraction in its first year of operation, but it had already been through its first change. I've heard a live recording from the original version, which featured a different name for the robot in the pre-show. I don't remember what it is, and I'm too lazy to go look it up. Um, but the late Saturday Night Live and news radio alumni Phil Hartman voiced the character, and he used more of a slick car salesman approach to the pre-show. In addition to copies of this version floating around on the Internet, um, the official Birnbaum guide to Walt Disney World still listed the original robot's name in the attraction description in the version of the guide that was sold at the park in 96. This is probably because quite often the guide would have a synopsis of an attraction that hadn't even been opened yet since uh, the book might come out before they were done building them. I guess that's something to consider when it comes to the official guide since you may be reading something that isn't even based on actual experience with the attraction. But I digress. Well, in case you never got to see either version of Alien Encounter, the original involved entering a holding area at the Tomorrowland Convention Center. 
Monitors would display various upcoming events, such as an appearance from uh, of the latest model of Mr. Lincoln from Lunar Disneyland, the happiest place off Earth, at some upcoming uh, robot expo. I've never run across a full list of all the screens that would come up while you were waiting, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone out there has a full list on some website or even a copy of the entire pre-show tape. Actually, maybe I should just check YouTube. Anyway, eventually a video presentation would begin with a female alien welcoming us to the presentation from XS Tech. The storyline involved this corporation discovering the Earth and wanting to show us all their great life-changing technology. It seems they were really happy to discover a new target audience to sell stuff to. Today, we'd be getting to see a demonstration of teleportation, and one lucky guest would be teleported to the XS homeworld to meet their chairman, Elsie Clinch. Of course, if only one guest were teleported, Clinch would only meet one person, so he interrupts the video and decides he will teleport down to Earth instead so he can meet all of us and explain in person the wondrous benefits of excess tech. As their slogan says, if something can't be done with excess, then it shouldn't be done at all. Very clever. Uh, the next room was where we met SIR, S-I-R, which stood for Simulated Intelligence Robotics. In uh, the second version of this attraction, this guy was a lot more sinister, and he was revoiced by Tim, Rocky Horror Picture Show Curry. He would uh, be demonstrating teleportation by uh, teleporting this nice, fluffy, skippy alien from a tube on the left of the room to the tube on the right. And as Disney tradition, something goes terribly wrong, and Skippy turns out a bit fried. A neat little detail was seeing what looked like electricity zapping around between Skippy's fried antenna ears, though in later years it seemed that this effect wasn't always working. Um, also, the uh, alien Sir himself had a laser-projected eyes, little laser beams that made the eyes so they would look around and open and blink and things like that. It was very, very cool. Well, finally, guests were led down an alienish looking hallway, passing ominous domes with red lights behind them. And they always made me think of Hal from 2001. There were two theaters that alternated shows, and we'd be sent into a large, rounded room that uh, was still very familiar to the configuration from Mission to Mars. The seats now have special harnesses that lowered, sort of like the over the shoulder roller coaster restraints and the theater effects that were made popular with all those 3D movies could now be even more intense. Um, once the guest was locked in, Disney would use binaural stereo sound effects and close-up blasts of air and other surprises to really creep people out. Now, I'd like to go on a tangent here for a moment and mention um, that the binaural sound technology that this ride was based on uh, was something Disney first started using in the sound booths over at Disney MGM Studios. They might have experimented with it before then, but that's the first time I became aware of it. You could go into these small closet booths and put on headphones and hear the sound of various things like a haircut. And when the hairdryer would blow, it'd really feel like it was blowing in your ear. And the sensation of hearing those scissors snips was, was very convincing. Since Alien Encounter was primarily a demonstration of this technology, with many of its sequences happening in total darkness, it seems only appropriate to mention a bit about the evolution of Disney using this technology. Um, Disney World also later expanded on the studio sound booths in 1999 when one of the original attractions over there, um, the Munster Sound Show, was replaced by Sounds Dangerous, which was a clever little film presentation that uh, had the audience listening via headphones to experience all the impossible things that the show host, Drew Carey, was going through after the camera went out and everyone was just in the dark. So um, they've been getting a lot of mileage out of this. Of course, they added binaural sound to the great moments with Mr. Lincoln attraction out at Disneyland. 
Now, as far as binaural stereo itself, for a real good explanation of what this is and how it works, check out some of the special features on the Munsters Incorporated DVD. Binaural sound is nothing more than a fancy stereo recording, but the microphones are placed in a head-shaped thing, so sound hitting the microphones is also reflected or absorbed the same way it would in your actual ears around your head, and that's really the trick to binaural sound. The microphones just have to be placed in the same place your ears would be to record the same way that your ears record sound. Um, binaural sound apparently dates back to the late 1800s, and yes, that is 1800s, um, just like 3D movie technology also date backs, dates back to the 1800s, as does the Pepper's Ghost special effect used in the Haunted Mansion Ballroom. It was a great time for inventing technology, which would uh, later become a staple of Disney attractions, I guess. Anyway, the point is, Disney figured out some neat ways to apply this old technology. Now, today, even if you can't afford a head-shaped audio capture microphone like the one shown in the Munsters, Inc. DVD, all you really have to do is place a microphone uh, on or in, um, you know, on each side of your head, kind of where your ears are to get a similar recording. A lot of podcasters, um, they use microphones like this for in-park audio, but the downside of live audio like that is as the person doing the recording turns their head to look around, the sound shifts unnaturally around, uh, which is very, uh, very annoying to me. The key to good binaural audio recording requires keeping the microphone position fixed as much as possible. Also, the microphones have to be on a head-shaped object to capture sound the same way our ears do. For this reason, if you hear someone with a binaural microphone strapped to their arm or something silly like that, that's they're not really getting binaural audio, just stereo with whatever separation they put between the microphones. So the key to binaural audio is having microphones exactly where your ears are, right, right inside your ears, and then playing the sound back from the same location, headphones to your ears. And this is why binaural audio requires you to wear headphones for the full effect. But see, Alien Encounter didn't require us to wear headphones because Disney was clever. With Alien Encounter, Disney built speakers into the harness that lowers around you. And this let them control the sound, um, as long as you didn't turn your head anyway, and you got a really good binaural audio effect. And by effect, I mean... Okay, well, let, let's talk about this uh, like 3D video. If you record a 3D picture of a mountain in the distance, looking at this picture isn't going to seem that much different than just a 2D, 2D picture. But if you have some close-up tree branches in the way so you can see the difference in depth, suddenly the 3D effect is far more obvious. Most 3D movies go out of their way to use this effect, throwing things at the camera or intentionally creating scenes with up-close and far-away objects. So to really make 3D work, you have to have scenes with a lot of depth. Likewise, to really make use of binaural audio, you have to have up-close audio. Now think about it like this. If you close your eyes and someone whispers in one of your ears, you know exactly where they are. But if they step a few feet back, you know which side they are, but you may not be able to place their exact position as easily. If they walk 20 feet away and talk to you, it's even harder to pinpoint their position. You've got a good general idea, but again, it's, it's a distance thing, just like 3D of a mountain. The farther away the audio is, the more it becomes just a generic stereo recording, and most folks wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a binaural microphone recording and a normal stereo microphone recording of, of distant objects. For that matter, most folks can't really tell the difference between listening to an MP3 versus audio from a CD. But true diehard audiophiles will tell you just how much better vinyl records are over compact discs. So again, I guess kind of the point is this is a really cool effect when it's done properly, but uh, for most people they probably don't know and can't tell. Anyway, Disney didn't use any distant sounds in Alien Encounter. 
Everything the audience heard was supposed to be happening directly next to them or behind them. You'd hear a voice that sounded like the guest next to you leaning over to whisper in your ear, which, of course, wasn't very convincing when you realized that their harness would prevent them from getting anywhere close to you like that. You'd also hear a voice from behind you accompanied by an in-seat effect that felt like they kicked the back of your chair. Again, not very effective if you're in the back row and you know no one could possibly be behind you. Uh, but the point is, binaural recordings, much like 3D recordings, can give depth to up-close sounds around you. Now, I have an HD camcorder and a device that lets me record 3D video that I was using with my previous camera. So maybe one of these days I'll try some 3D recordings and binaural sound, and we'll see if that works, but something tells me it must not really pay off, else Disney probably would have already tried that. Imagine a Disney 3D experience with over-the-shoulder harnesses like Alien Encounter, uh, with 3D video and in-theater effects and binaural audio. I mean, maybe that's the next uh, next step for, like, a ride simulator or something. Uh, but I think I digress. Sorry about the binaural audio tangent, folks. Um, the part of me that worked in radio and did ad production for years is really fascinated by stuff like this. Um, but I certainly understand if it bores you to tears. I've had some conversations about this with one of my podcast friends, St. Chris, and he pointed me to a lot of references on the technology and microphones. And I was actually surprised to find out that there were these little in-ear binaural microphones for less than 50 bucks these days. I mean, heck, I paid more than that for my regular microphone I used for uh, my uh, album. Anyway, the, the show itself getting back to the topic, featured a, uh, a huge late-generation audio-animatronic alien that was teleported into a tube in the middle of the room. Now, as usual, something goes terribly wrong, and it breaks the tube, and you fill it. Um, but there's a force field that keeps it in safely, and then the power goes out, and then the lights go out. And now, of course, the unseen a seen alien is flying around the room, landing on chairs, breathing in the back of our necks, and, and just generally scaring the heck out of people with sounds and bursts of air. My favorite part of this entire thing is, is when you'd have a live cast member that would be seen walking up on the catwalks at the top of the room. And you'd hear a voice, which was on the soundtrack, that would shout down, Is everybody okay down there? Or something like that. And the cast member, who we could follow on the video screens from their point of view as if they had a camera on them, uh, was going up there to try to get the power back down. It was a clever mix of a live cast member and pre-recorded audio and video. Of course, the cast member encounters the alien up there and is eaten and water drips on us as if it were blood. Yep, a Disney attraction where they imply someone gets killed above you and you feel liquid drip on you. Great. Did I mention that this was a real dark, sinister, and scary attraction? When I first saw it opening year, I remember telling someone that, man, this was a great attraction, but it had no business being in the Magic Kingdom. I mean, heck, this thing scared the heck out of me the very first time I experienced it back in the days before digital cameras and high-speed internet allowed everybody to easily post videos of full attractions, so, you know, you knew what to expect. Um, I'd never been through anything like this. Of course, I guess it wouldn't have mattered even if we did have high-speed internet back then because uh, Alien Encounter is one of those places where cast members will have you turn off your camera. I have video from the queue area right up to the point where the cast member walks up to me and tells me there's no videotaping and I have to turn my gadget off. So, and Speaking of all the cast members, there was also something sinister about them in this attraction. Much like the Haunted Mansion folks and how they'll be more scary than normal Disney cast members and more somber and creepy, well, the Alien Encounter CMs would say things like, Move all the way down! This is mandatory! And other such forceful, we-mean-business things that you typically don't hear at Disney. So that was kind of great. It was a, They got to play with that a little bit, at least in the early years. 
So um, with all that said, yes, I'm one of those folks that misses the original Alien Encounter, or at least the second version of the original Alien Encounter that I actually got to see. It was a one-of-a-kind experience, and the only thing I had a problem with is where it was built. There were so many kids that were made to cry on this thing that for a while Disney had cast members outside with small video players um, so they could play a scary TV commercial about the ride to give people an idea of what was inside. And this was done because of foreign visitors that, that would, couldn't read all the English warning signs or, you know, things like that. And, and by the way, when, when I, when I, at least when I saw what they were playing to people, it was the same video promo that played on the tourism channel in all the Orlando area hotels. Uh, you know that one, it shows nothing but theme park commercials 24 hours a day, mostly from Disney? Well, whatever organization is behind that channel, could probably put out a video podcast with new commercials as they're added, and all of us diehard tourists would probably love subscribing to their ads. Uh, and then we could keep copies of the ads of these now-gone attractions. Maybe I should just check YouTube. Eh, boy. Anyway, unfortunately, the reception of Alien Encounter didn't seem to be good enough to convince Disney to recreate the ride out on the West Coast. So the California location, which used to be Mission to the moon and Mars, it just sat empty until it reopened as Red Rocket's Pizza Port Restaurant in 1998 as part of the previously mentioned new New Tomorrowland project. Now in Florida, XS Tech was kicked out of the convention center in 2003 when the ride was altered for a third time to become Stitch's Great Escape, featuring that fluffy little alien from Lilo and Stitch, or is it Lilo, or that's another Disney movie I haven't seen, though I know it uses a lot of Elvis music. Losing excess tech impacted other areas, too, because the excess tech uh, mythology was found in a few other places in Tomorrowland. For instance, there was this uh, shop where a robotic airbrushing thing would do T-shirts. It was like a, an airbrush robot. And this big device had the excess logo on it like it was one of their products. Um, today there's a smoothie shop in that place, I believe, and I don't think any of the smoothie machines are excess tech. I didn't really check. Um, the rethemed attraction opened towards the end of 2004, and at that time I remember seeing a lot of publicity photos taken at the Magic Kingdom of Cinderella Castle being wrapped in, I guess, toilet paper, or what was supposed to be toilet paper. And there was graffiti everywhere, um, and the message was simply that Stitch was here and he was causing havoc in the Magic Kingdom. Now, I didn't get to see this new version until um, a week ago when I went to, and, and actually, to be honest, when I went in, I was expecting to completely hate it. I've heard so many Discasters really rag on this attraction, and now that I've seen it, I'm not really sure I understand why. Now, first, let me say that I actually think it is a better fit in the Magic Kingdom than Alien Encounter was, especially since it actually uses a Disney character instead of some made-up Lucas creature like the original versions. It also has a lot more humor to it, and it comes across far more funny than terrifying. Um, think of how that animated spirit of 3D character in the Muppet Vision 3D movie is when he's bouncing around on people's heads. Well, in this new version, Stitch does something pretty similar, except now we can fill it when he bounces on our heads. The external area was lightly rethemed, and it's supposed to be like a prison center, more or less. And the storyline is that all of us vacationers, for whatever reason, are signing up to be galactic prison guards. Don't ask me. The entrance of the attraction has also been moved at some point in the past few years uh, from where it originally was under what used to be the Alien Encounter sign. And all traces of the old Alien Encounter and XS uh, tech stuff is pretty much gone, except for a few small references I noticed left, you know, probably as a tribute. 
The uh, the pre-show video is now an animated cartoon using some alien character that I don't know, probably from the movie, I'm sure. Then there's a, a robotic part of the pre-show itself um, remains, but it, it has a more comical robot voiced by, gosh, I think it's Nathan Lane. Sounds like Nathan Lane. Again, I, I didn't look any of this up. I just went there to enjoy it. This now gives the um, the Lane guy two robot animatronics to his Disney attraction credits, with the other one uh, being Tom Morrow at Disneyland's Intervention pre-show. Now, Skippy is still there, but he's he's now a criminal in a holding tube. You see, they capture these guys, and then they transport them back in these tubes. I guess you got to make use of the set pieces, after all. They teleport in a new cre- uh, creature, one that, some that they just captured, and um, the former crispy version of Skippy appears in a, a re-themed form on the other side of the room. So gone is that illusion to teleporting across the room, and, and the cute electric effect I used to like so much is gone, too. While I'm talking about this room, I'd also like to point out there's another legacy magic effect Disney uses here. Each tube allows you to see below it, and you can clearly see through that space back to the patterns of the wall behind it. It's an optical illusion that's been used in stage magic for many, many years, and I'm assuming most of you know how it's done, so I'm not going to comment on it here. But again, you know, we're going back to more Pepper's Ghost era type um, visual effects. Okay, so eventually we're led into a uh, the, to the showroom, which is still very similar, but now it features two large robotic arm cannon tracker things hanging from the ceiling. Stitch is teleported into the area for us to keep an eye on, which of course is our job. And then during the show, these laser cannons, or whatever they are, they start tracking Stitch as he moves around, pointing everywhere, and of course, something goes terribly wrong. Uh, first, the Stitch animatronic is phenomenal. They actually make it look like he's walking around in the tube area. You see him lift his feet as he walks around. It's not since the old Disneyland America Sings attraction have I seen an animatronic appear to be able to walk around as smoothly as this guy. Even Ben Franklin over at um, at the America Pavilion at Epcot doesn't move as smoothly. Oh, well, okay, I'm not counting Lucky, that free-roaming dinosaur thing, of course. Well, he probably walks better than all of them. And, um... Stitch will spit water, and sparks will fly, and things short out, and the cannons go crazy trying to shoot Stitch. And then uh, Stitch vanishes, and he's heard roaming all around the room. It's a, a There's kind of a great additional effect, which is the shadow of Stitch shown up on the top edges of the walls all around us. We can see this animated shadow move around the room as if Stitch is above us on the catwalks out of sight. Um, very, very nice. Um, the cannons will misfire into the audience when we see... Light and smoke shoot up from between seats. Uh, a lot of neat things have been added there. Stitch also has fun getting up close to all of us, taking um, taking steps on the back of our chairs, and we can feel that. He talks into our ear, and at one point we hear him eat a cell phone of whoever is sitting next to us when it, when we hear the phone go off ringing. Um, it's going to kind of seem a little strange in a few more years when there are no cell phones left that actually sound like phones ringing and they all play hip-hop tunes. I guess probably the most controversial, if, if you can consider a Disney attraction controversial thing, the, one of the most controversial bits is when Stitch steals a chili dog from someone next to you. you. Again, don't we all know you can't bring food and drinks into a Disney ride? Well, someone did, and Stitch catches them, and then he burps, and through the magic of Disney's smellizers, we get to smell something. It doesn't really smell like chili to me, but I'm I, it sure wasn't pleasant. So that's that's something that a lot of people find kind of tacky, and I'd agree with that. 
Um, there's tons of gags and comical elements as Stitch roams around, and there's still plenty of startles when he breathes on her neck, and all that fun captive audience stuff goes on. But eventually Stitch outsmorts us all, and he manages, manages to escape back through the teleportation tube. A happy ending for Stitch. And as we exit the theater, there's this funny countdown sign that shows, like, days since escape or something like that. And it's got some huge number, and it's frantically counting back down to reset back at zero. A great little touch. And then we exit through a gift shop. All right, so uh, what about this update? Well, some graphics have changed. The videos in the pre-show and the monitors inside the theaters are all animation now. That's fine. But it's certainly less realistic than seeing actual people or aliens, whatever, talking to you. The cartoons probably make the attraction more accessible to children, which makes sense since it's all based around an animated character in a cartoon anyway. There seems to be a lot more that happens inside the actual theater with Stitch spitting the smells and the laser cannons, you know, than Alien Encounter ever had. I mean, I mean, I just love those laser track and cannon things. They're so cool. They move really, really fast. Oh, and I forget, right at the end, um, when Stitch escapes, there's this great gag as they track him down and he lands on Earth to some place called Florida, to some kind of kingdom. And we keep seeing pictures of this as it gets closer and closer until we're looking at the castle. And we get to see Stitch climbing Cinderella Castle, knocking on a door up there and pretending to be the prince before Cinderella kicks him out. It kind of really reminded me of how uh, Disney promoted the Lilo and Stitch movie when it first came out. You may remember a commercial that started out with like the ballroom scene from Beauty and the Beast before Stitch was seen crawling around the ceiling and the chandelier which eventually comes crashing down onto the floor, and I think Bell says I'll be in my trailer or something like that. Well, there were a few of these commercials, and I always thought they were really clever in how they presented the new attitude of this Disney character, Stitch. Uh, and maybe that's part of the problem. This new attraction really ties in on the mischievous nature of a Disney character, and maybe some folks don't really care for that. But to me, I, I think it's far more appropriate and far more Disney-like than the original evil alien encounter. And surprisingly, I think if I had a choice between both attractions, I'd be lining up for Stitch's Great Escape more often than Alien Encounter. But I still miss the original, and I'm pretty sure either of them is more interesting to a modern audience than Rocket to the Moon or Mission to Mars would be today. Though Disney did manage to update Mission to Mars when they built Mission Space at Epcot, but that's, that's a tell for another episode. I mean, I guess that's about all my ramblings on this subject. There's some history on the evolution of what eventually became Stitch and a long tangent into one of the technologies used in the attraction and some disconnected comments on what I thought about the latest version. Maybe not a typical park-hopping podcast, but as I promised, I'll get back to the normal shows after a few more episodes and I finish off all my Disney World updates. Speaking of Disney World... The next time you're there, be sure to take an extra picture, shoot some extra video, because you really never know when something you like, love, or hate is going to go away and never be around again, or just have the scent of chili dogs added to it. And on that note, I think that'll do it for me this time, so be sure to visit DisneyFans.com, where you can browse around 35,000 digital pictures I've taken at Disneyland, Disney World, and other theme parks across the country, as well as dozens of downloadable video files from the Disney parks. And if you want to talk about some of your favorite podcasts, but not the Park Hopping Podcast, be sure to drop by the Disney Podcast Network at DisneyPodcastNet.com and sign up for their discussion board. And if you want to drop me a note, my email address is podcast at DisneyFans.com. If you'd rather use the telephone, feel free to dial 206-2030-ACP. That's for another crappy podcast. Again, 206-2030-227, and leave me a voicemail. 
This has been the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 47, Stitch's Great Remake. Thanks for listening. Another Crappy Podcast production. Be sure to visit anothercrappypodcast.com to learn more about this and other equally exciting <sighs> podcasts. Mm.